Before we start, a quick reminder. This podcast discusses sex, violence, and social oppression. It may be uncomfortable or triggering to some. If you're listening out loud, parts of this narrative may seem sensitive to those around you. Our difficulty, as I said, is not about the ultimate future. Our difficulty is how to make the heterogeneous mess that we have today take a decision in common and march in a cooperative way on that road which is bound to lead us to unity. Our difficulty is not with regard to the ultimate. Our difficulty is with regard to the beginning. One of the great things about the Constitution of India is that it provides each citizen with direct access to the highest court in the country. And if you belong to a minority group, that access is important. This is how Supreme Court lawyer Saurabh Kirpal describes it. We run to court as citizens for upholding our fundamental rights against an elected majority. A citizen going to court asking for their fundamental right to be upheld is fundamentally counter-majoritarian. It is the one person who says, the majority is seeking to oppress me. You, the custodians of the constitution, you, the courts, please uphold my fundamental right. Article 32 of the constitution, which Ambedkar said is the soul of our constitution. He said if that there is any article which is more important than any other in the constitution, it is this. It is an embodiment of the fundamental principle that any individual can go to court and knock at the courts of justice. But we all know that in practice, things work a bit differently. Accessing the Supreme Court requires a pretty good understanding of how the country's legal system works. If you don't have that kind of knowledge, you need someone to represent you. This means hiring a lawyer, hopefully a good one. That access comes with a level of privilege, privilege that isn't always available to everybody. India's legal infrastructure itself shows the deep inequalities and cracks in our society. Since independence, nearly half of the Supreme Court's chief justices have come from the upper caste group of Brahmins. For perspective, Brahmins make up only about 4% of the Indian population. And currently, there are only two women sitting in a court of over 30 justices. As a complete outsider to the legal system, when I set out to interview people for this podcast, I discovered that many of the lawyers I spoke with came from second or third generation families of lawyers and judges. Brothers, uncles, sons, most of them men, were part of the litigation. There were exceptions, of course, but to an outsider, it felt like the legal community is one where it really helps to have connections, especially the kind that you're related to. We've already met the five highly accomplished petitioners, or the famous five, who moved to the Supreme Court in 2016. Celebrity chef Ritu Dalmia, Aman Nath of the Nimrana chain of hotels, classical dancer Navtej Singh Johar, his partner and journalist Sunil Mehra, businesswoman Aisha Kapoor. All established professionals known well in their fields. Filing a petition in the Supreme Court was well within the rights of these five individuals. But the decision to do so, and the manner in which it was done, sparked a debate within parts of the LGBTQI community. If everyone deserves justice, why did it take a special group of highly accomplished people to convince the judges to read down the law? Do you have to be successful in order for your rights to be recognized? 
Does the Supreme Court work for all or just a privileged few? From ATS Studio, I'm Sindhuri Nandakumar, and this is 377, a show about a stubborn law, its unjust impact, and the movement to get rid of it. In our previous episode, we talked about how the case against 377 started gaining momentum in early 2018. It had gone into cold storage for a couple of years, but in January 2018, the Chief Justice of India, Deepak Mishra, pulled up the writ petitions filed by our famous five and announced that they would be heard in court. The queer community had once again received an opportunity to air its grievances about just how unfair Section 377 of the Indian Penal Code was. It's July 10th, 2018. Courtroom number one is abuzz with activity. That's the courtroom of the Chief Justice of India. I never imagined I'd go to court and uh, that the first court would be the Chief Justice's Court of the Supreme Court. Akhilesh Godi is trying to make his way inside. Alright, so hey, I'm Akhilesh. I'm in my mid-twenties right now and uh, I graduated from the Indian Institute of Technology, Madras, in 2015. Akhilesh is one of the 20 queer people from IIT whose petition against 377 had been tagged together with the Navtej Johar petitions. He's flown from Bangalore to Delhi for the hearing. But that isn't even the most challenging part of the journey. Security outside the courtroom is tight. Initially on the first day, they didn't, they didn't even let us in. They're like, who are you? And we had to convince, boss, we are petitioners. We filed this case, please let us in. They're like, no, no, where is the proof? No, we're not. They didn't listen to us. They're like, no, you can't be. You're just trying to get it. And there were strict uh, rules with respect. At 11.30 a.m., Five judges convene to hear the matter of Navtej Singh Johar and others versus Union of India. Alongside them, there are a few more petitions. Dr. Akkai Padmashali and others, Keshav Suri, Arif Jafar, Ashok Rao Kavi and others, and the IIT group, Anvesh Pokulori and others. I think uh, three three people were let in at, at a given point of time for case filing. And I think we took turns in between to let other people who wanted to go in so we managed the passes that way. But yeah, I mean, there's no breathing space, if I should say that, on all the days. The five judges on the bench are Chief Justice Deepak Mishra, Justices Rohintan Nariman, A.M. Khanvilkar, D.Y. Chandrachud, and Indu Malhotra. Right from day one, it's obvious that the judges are sympathetic. They talk about how gender identity and sexual orientation are fluid and can't be seen in isolation. But being gay is not a matter of choice and therefore not something that you could snap out of. The first lawyer to make his arguments is Mukul Rohatki. Here's lawyer Saurabh Kirpal talking about the strategy that went into deciding the order. So we really wanted the matter to be commenced by one of the heaviest legal minds in court at that point of time, which was Mukul Rohatki, who was a former attorney general of India. Incidentally, during his time as ASG, Mr. Rohatki argued for the government against Puttaswamy. That's the landmark right to privacy case of 2017 related to Aadhaar. Back then, his stance was that the Indian constitution didn't guarantee the right to privacy. Now that the courts had ruled in favour of Puttaswamy, he used that judgment as the basis for this case. 
Mr. Rohatki's arguments hinged on Article 21 of the Constitution, the right to life and personal liberty. 377, he said, violated this right and led to his petitioners living life as unconvicted felons. The court convened for lunch, and Mr. Rohatki was supposed to come back and resume his arguments. But there was a curveball. Mukul was, as usual, a passionate self. But we could tell I was sitting next to him as as his instructing lawyer. And I could see while there was full passion, he was arguing the matter, that he wasn't feeling too well, uh, especially towards the end of the hearings. During lunch, the former ASG had to be rushed to the hospital because he was suffering from a bout of tachycardia. That's when your heart starts beating at a very rapid rate. Luckily, it wasn't a serious episode, but back in the courtroom, it meant that the plaintiff's star lawyer wasn't going to argue anymore. So we asked another one, another senior counsel, Arvindata, to take over at 2 p.m. But the slot of what he was intending to argue was very narrow. He really wanted to talk about the history of the Section 377. So he started arguing the matter and he was over in about half an hour. So by 2.30, again, we were left with no lawyer who was to argue for the balance one and a half hours of the matter. Saurabh himself had to step in and pick up the arguments of Mr. Rohitki. He talked about the landmark American case, Lawrence v. Texas, where the American Supreme Court declared that laws prohibiting homosexual activity are unconstitutional. The court then breaks for the day. The next morning, Saurabh was to resume his arguments. But first, the government had to issue its stance. Because it was a respondent in the case, it was important for the government's views to also be heard. ASG Tushar Mehta says that the government would leave the matter to the wisdom of the court, but asks that only Section 377 be discussed, not broader rights for queer people. The central government simply said that they would leave the matter to the wisdom of the court. Now, that was almost a positive thing because at least the government didn't actually say that they wished to uphold Section 377. It would have been good if the government could have had the courage to come out and say that a democratic country like India with a liberal constitution could not condone the prevalence of Section 377 on its statute books, but the government didn't say that. They chose, uh, I suppose, a safe middle ground, saying that they leave it to the wisdom of the court. And then it's Menaka Guruswami's turn to speak on behalf of the IIT petitioners. She starts by saying that Section 377 violates Articles 14, 15, 19, and 21. She cites international examples from South Africa and Canada. And before the court breaks for lunch, she makes a passionate plea. How strongly must we love knowing we're unconvicted felons under Section 377? My lords, this is love that must be constitutionally recognized and not just sexual acts, she says. Danish Sheikh, a legal scholar and queer activist, vividly remembers this reference to love. I think the way in which she uses the language of love is, again, I thought was really moving. So she speaks about how, you know, her petitioners have spent their lives living in the shadow of the law. And what does it mean to love that way? And then how strongly must you love to resist? And I thought that was also really, really beautiful. But Gautaman, another legal scholar who was also present in the courtroom, felt conflicted. As touching as the moment was, he couldn't help but feel that it was presented as something that brilliant IIT students deserved. This very elite group, a group the rest of us are often excluded from. 
and i was so moved i was really moved by the power of that submission but at the same time when there were submissions made to make a case for the petitioners who were iitians uh there was a very strong emphasis on how meritorious they were and at that moment as a queer dalit person who accessed affirmative action um i felt rather left out and i had to like hold these two emotions together and make sense of them as much as this reference to love touched danish and many others not everyone was thrilled i spoke with jay sharma a lawyer and queer activist who had this to say and to add to that why invoke love uh, necessarily because uh, which is not to say that you know love can also have a subversive role to play and we know that in the context of say uh, you know intercaste uh, love but the concern is also that you know if as queer people we need to say that it's because we fall in love uh, that we have a right to exist uh, it it can get a little problematic This argument about the role that love played in the case ties into a larger one about respectability. Love is a very polished movie-esque view of sexual rights. It almost becomes a euphemism for sex, especially in India where a vast majority of marriages are arranged. Love is wonderful, but invoking it in court seemed like an attempt to make sex respectable. Here's Jaya again. But one concern was in terms of a kind of premium placed on respectability and a premium placed on love and also on uh, you know the focus on certain individuals and this is actually a kind of a a concern that's been shared by several people in the queer community that uh, you know why hold up as examples you know a few well known people also from a certain kind of background maybe markers of uh, respectability jaya is talking about the petitions from highly accomplished individuals successful business people and students of iit markers of respectability in india who deserve rights because they're in love this goes back to the question of privilege that we opened this episode with all of the petitions that were filed whether it was the famous fivers the trans activists or the others took a considerable level of bravery they were declaring their queer status to the highest court in a country where being queer could be seen as criminal they were taking on a big risk you know so whether as a lawyer or a plaintiff if you yourself are putting your time and effort and everything and your life literally you know on the line if you're coming out to this extent and making your identity public that should be welcomed and we've always stood by that that's the voice of a member of labia a queer feminist collective she requested anonymity and asked that we call her vidya vidya also echoed jaya's sentiments my point here is that if you choose a certain tactic now in this case natijahar and others they're taking the decision of picking out their own individual stories putting them forward and the lawyers choosing to highlight those individual stories because they feel that is what will win them the case that's fine in that limited sense that it will help you win the case as a tactic for that particular objective it is fine but some people also felt that this move went against the inclusive nature of the struggle Even though the lawyers and the petitioners might never have intended it, queerness was being presented in a mainstream way. In every other way, these five petitioners, 
accomplished, rich, well-spoken, fit a very mainstream narrative of a successful person. And this had the potential to leave other people out of the struggle. We cannot let go of other issues, rights, identities. We cannot throw the rest of the people who do not fit this clean narrative. We cannot throw them under the bus just for the sake of these short-term tactics. I asked Saurabh Khirpal about this. Saurabh was one of the lawyers for the famous five petitioners. And he was very aware of the criticism surrounding the petition. But privilege or not, every person does have a right to the court. If any person feels aggrieved, they have the right to move to court. And that's how it really should also happen. He acknowledged this debate around privilege, but saw this as a courageous move. You know, there's an accusation that the people who filed the petition, Ritu, Navtej, uh, Aisha, Sunil and Aman, are wealthy, privileged individuals. And therefore, there is almost an accusation that it's only the privileged who went to court. But I think that kind of forgets very important aspect, which is that it is only the privileged who initially had the courage to go to court because they knew that even if they did take a chance and file a petition, the full force of the law that often falls upon the underprivileged would probably not fall upon them. They had, therefore, the courage to actually approach the court and say, here I am, I'm a gay person, uphold my rights. I spoke with Vivek Devan, a queer lawyer who had been involved in the Nas Foundation's case. He has been a pretty vocal critic about the lawyers in the Navtej Johar matter. He believes that the journey of success against 377 has been miscast. I think one of the things that I realized in this, and this is again related to miscasting, because I think the casting has been that there are these people who came to our rescue of Knights in White Shining Armor, and they came from their highly accomplished contexts. But there were many of us who were from highly accomplished contexts, so privileged certainly. And I think the idea was that yes, 377 is a very urgent issue, but it's best represented by the quotidian experience and not uh, the exceptional privileged experience. And so I think part of uh, the representation of the case always has been that this is not about a certain westernized, urban, gay, whatever experience, but about a much larger way in which queer women, trans people, other men are actually experiencing challenges to their gender identity, sexual orientation, just their expressions of sexuality. And that's what needs to be conveyed. And that's what we need to talk to our lawyers who argue for us so that they can then transmit that to the judges and hopefully the judges will pick up that nuance and then... And you see that in the, in the great uh, 2009 judgment. It's, it's really a sensitive judgment. Interestingly, though, when I spoke with Anjali Gopalan, the founder of the Nas Foundation and Vivek's longtime ally against 377, she had a different take on this. Despite being on the same side of the legal battle, when I asked her about this whole privilege aspect, she seemed irritated by the question. Excuse me. We got what we wanted, right? Homosexuality has been decriminalized. What more do we want at, at that stage? That's what we wanted and we got it. So what if they come from privilege? The issues are still similar. If you, I understand if you're from privilege, it's easier to negotiate. But that doesn't make it any less um, hurtful. That doesn't make it any less uh, non-inclusive. The underlying issues are still there. And how does it matter if they're from privilege? They took a stand, they were able to get hurt, and we got what we wanted at the end of the day, which I think is fantastic. It's so easy to find fault with everything. But I, I'm so grateful that this happened. 
I never thought it would happen during my lifetime. So it's such a relief that it did. Back in the courtroom at the hearings, Menaka Guruswami has spoken passionately about the young petitioners she's representing. These young people, she says, have the rest of their lives to live out, and it's their right to do so without being labeled unconvicted felons. Chef Ritu Dalmia, one of the petitioners in the case, remembers this moment very well. My favorite moment, actually the most favorite moment, was when Menaka Guruswami gave the closing statement when she spoke the last bit when she did the closing statement for our case i think she had more or less everyone in the courtroom get a little lump in their throat and some couldn't even stop their tears anand grover who had represented the nas foundation since the early 2000s then commences his arguments on behalf of arif jafar who was arrested in 2001 for the public health work he was doing with MSM populations that's men who have sex with men jena kothari speaks on behalf of her clients arguing how the nalsa verdict which guarantees the rights of trans people is at odds with 377 over four days the judges hear a long list of lawyers argue big legal minds like sham divan and ashok desai argue against 377 talking about its discriminatory nature and roots in Victorian morality. And the last day is mostly focused on lawyers who want to uphold Kaushal, the 2013 verdict which called queer people a minuscule minority. In dramatic contrast to those hearings, the judges seem to have little patience for homophobic comments. They point out that some of the evidence submitted in court actually came from hate-promoting American websites. By this point, Saurabh knew that things were going in his team's favor. And really seeing how the court was reacting to those arguments was a firm indicator of which way the wind was blowing. Because the judges were almost poo-pooing the arguments of the respondents. So we knew that we were in a relatively strong wicket. But there is such a thing as courtroom decorum. Especially when you're in the Supreme Court, in the Chief Justice's courtroom. and chef ritu dalmia found that out the hard way a couple of times i was asked to leave the court by saurabh because sometimes such silly comments were made by the opposition lawyer that i have a problem i mean when i laugh i start snorting so a couple of times i was made to suddenly that okay you need to go stand out for 10 minutes behave yourself and come back again and what do you remember some of the most ridiculous things that set you off in laughter oh many 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 uh, at one point they talked about how grinder and tinder men come on to it and you know they i mean and this is completely unnatural in our culture doesn't exist there was like so archaic and without even knowing what tinder grinder and i mean it was it was the whole thing was a joke On July 17, 2018, the hearings conclude. After just 4 days of arguing the matter, the Supreme Court had wrapped up the trial. We know the verdict was positive, but what does the Navdej Johar verdict say and how does it affect the lives of the queer community in India? A diverse community, a, a rainbow community. And in this context, what does the word community even mean? That's on our next episode. A 
special thanks to constitutional law experts Gautam Bhatia and Tarunab Khetan for their guidance. And Vivek Devan for providing material that helped with fact-checking and verification. 377 is a production of ATS Studio, a division of all things small. This episode was hosted by me, Sindhuri Nandakumar, and written by me and Ashim De Silva, who also produced the show. Script supervision is by Devaya Bopanna and Archana Nathan, with editorial input from Sidin Varukut and Supriya Nair. The music and sound design is by Madhav Ayachit, and the episode is mixed and mastered by Ankit Suryakanth. Our executive producer is Gaurav Vaz. Our legal consultant is Amshula Prakash. We received administrative support from Anushka Mukherjee. All clips and voices used in this podcast are owned by their original creators. You can find more information about this episode and our show notes at allthingssmall.in slash 377.